How's everybody doing? Good. Hey, grab your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4 uh, is where we're going to be uh, this morning. Looking forward to diving into God's Word with you. Uh, really excited to continue our time uh, in this series um, where we're talking about the Israelites returning to Judah and to Jerusalem. Their rebuilding of the temple, and as we're looking into Nehemiah now, the wall, um, and then the renewal that God's doing in the heart of his people. Um, so just a, just a real quick uh, flashback to Ezra, and then we'll start w- talking through uh, Nehemiah. But obviously in Ezra, we see uh, this, this prophecy come to fruition that God's people are released from exile under Darius's reign. They are able to go back uh, to Jerusalem just as Jeremiah had prophesied. Uh, after this exile, they go back to that land. And then obviously in Israel, we see a number of positive and then also strangely negative things that are happening in the history of God's people. Uh, for one, we see them come together and be a part of building the foundation, building the temple altar. Incredible things are happening there. And yet at the same time, um, there's impurity. There's a lack of true worship of Yahweh. Uh, and that book really ends in this terrible anticlimax of sorts where, where God's people um, experience the, the catastrophic ramifications of, of the end of families and all these things that, that they've kind of given themselves to rather than pure worship of the Lord. Thirteen years later, we walk into this place and we look to Nehemiah's story. Now, originally, we've talked about this from the beginning, that the, each of these texts are one together. Um, they're, they're re- it's really one linear, universal presentation of the history of God's people. So this, we pick up post-Ezra 10, 13-ish years later into Nehemiah, and last week uh, we got to look into Nehemiah 1. Uh, here's what I'd like to do today. I'd like to read the passage that we're going to look to today. It's Nehemiah 4, 1 through 14. It's a substantial amount of verses, and you may say, hey, that's really great that we're going to look at that. How in the world are we going to go from 1 last week to 4 this week? Um, and the answer is this, fast. Uh, ultimately, we're going to look through some, some key pieces, some key moments in chapter 2 and 3, and really look at the history of what's happening in these moments that leads to this incredible, pivotal moment, not just in the rebuilding of the wall, but with some definitive action of what it looks like for you and me, for you and me, thousands of years removed from this moment, yet still a part of God's people and his history and his story, what it looks like for us to trust and live and walk in faith. Uh, So we're going to begin this morning reading uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, and you can find it on the screen as well if you don't have a copy of God's Word uh, in front of you. I will prepare you, though, if you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn to Nehemiah uh, just in in the next few moments because we're going to look at chapter 2 and 3 and refer to some things in there that I'm going to want you to see. All right, Nehemiah 4, uh, verses 1 through 14 says this. Now, when Sambalot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes. What they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And then the language returns back to Nehemiah. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. 
turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Asherites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, let's recap chapter 1 uh, and how do we get to this place. The, the number, number of things happening here in chapter 4. Obviously, you see the, the dialogue, really, the, the communication at the outset of the story is Nehemiah talking. He's describing these events, and yet there are all these interjections from the enemies, from Sambalot, from all of these people that oppose the work the Jews are doing to rebuild the wall, to rebuild, to fortify the strength, the protection, the place of worship in Jerusalem. How did all this come to fruition? How do we get to this point? How did this start? Uh, chapter 1. Uh, Nehemiah, if you look into chapter 1, you see that, that, that kind of portion in, in, in verse 1 that says uh, that he was in, in Susa, the citadel. Uh, so he is with, he is working under King Artaxerxes of Persia. He's the one that has taken over from Darius. Uh, and, and what you see there is Nehemiah in a place with him. So he's outside of Jerusalem. He's outside of Judah. He is in this place. He is in Persia with Artaxerxes. And what we find is that he receives word in chapter 1 that the wall in Jerusalem is broken down. That the gates are destroyed. And moreover, that the, that the people of Israel, this remnant that's left, they are in trouble. They're in trouble and they are in distress. And so we looked last week at the character, at the prayer of Nehemiah, at what one does in a moment of distress. Where do we go in times of distress? Where do we go when there's bad news? Where do we go in pain? And we get this picture of Nehemiah and his character. And we see, one, that, that prayer is action. That Nehemiah weeps and he turns to the Lord in prayer. That prayer is not this kind of heaving up, this kind of desperation, last chance. No, it's incredibly intentional. That prayer for him is not a last resort. It's the first resort. He goes and he seeks out the Lord. And then he has this desire to act. He has this desire to act, to move, to do something. This call to arms within himself that says, hey, I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to be a part of the restoration 
uh, that, that I know God wants to take place. I want to help lead and shepherd that. Uh, we see in that prayer in chapter 1 his confession of his sins, his identity with the people, with a people who has continually been unfaithful. Not unlike Ezra, we saw in Ezra chapter 9, and we'll see it again in Nehemiah 9 as well, but Nehemiah takes on the burden, the sins, the guilt, all of the struggle of his people and prays that God would allow them to trust him again. And as he prays the promises back to God, as he prays the promises of what God has said will come to fruition, his mind, his heart, all that he is, is centered on God as the point of the story. Not just himself, not just his people, not just that wall, but instead of Yahweh as the center of all things. Uh, and that last verse in chapter 1 really is the kind of setup for chapter 2 so we can understand what's happening in this story. It says that Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. Now we talked a little bit about that this last week and that this, this cupbearing is a unique place in antiquity. In this world, Nehemiah is the one who is serving wine to the king. Now, that's not just, again, we, not just like a sommelier or not somebody who's picking out a, a good bottle or something rare or a glass of something delicious. He is doing something really intentional in his cupbearing. He is protecting the king. He's protecting the king. He would taste and try and, and, and really test the wines that would come to make sure that the king wasn't poisoned. I'm thankful I live in a day when you and I sit down and order a glass of anything uh, that, that we're largely not fearful that we're going to be poisoned, all right? Uh, but that was not the case. There were people constantly trying to uproot monarchies. And so Nehemiah has this place, and his role is incredibly important. Yet, he's still not one who has the authority to speak to and ask to and, and, and have request met by this king, Artaxerxes. But as we look into chapter 2, He's given this opportunity to ask Artaxerxes of something great. Look into verse 4, um, and, and you can see him, him requesting. The king sees his face with sadness. Uh, the king says, look, you're not sick, you're not ill. It's obvious that you're sad in heart. What is it that you want? And he describes the situation in Jerusalem, in Judah, with his people and says, look, I, I long to, I want to return. Um, this is an incredible thing. The king actually grants his request and he stops and he prays the Lord in the middle of it. And then you look down into uh, the, the latter verses and you kind of see that latter verses, that first section. You see Nehemiah thoughtfully getting papers, thoughtfully understanding that he needs some letters. He needs some, some official documents that allow him to traverse uh, the, the trail to go back to Judah and Jerusalem, to make it to this province beyond the river, to get through all these governors that would likely and surely stop him. Uh, he gets all of this authority. And in verse 8, you see this picture that we've seen throughout Ezra. The good hand of my God was on me. So in the midst of frustration, in the midst of pain, in the midst of despair, it is very obvious that as we've seen throughout time and time again in the story of Ezra, here again in Nehemiah, God's providence is at work. God is providentially allowing this work to happen in the heart of even pagan kings. How could these things be if not for the Lord? Looking into verses 9 through 20 of chapter 2, um, he enters Judah and Jerusalem. Um, he's entering Judah and Jerusalem. And look, uh, the enemies of the Lord hear of this. 
They're awakened to the reality that Nehemiah has come to this place. This opposition that's brewing up, that's going to be a major theme for our passage today. Uh, Nehemiah inspects the brokenness of the walls and the gates. Uh, And in verses 17 through 20, you see a a really good picture, a formative picture of of what this whole text is about. Uh, In verse 17 of chapter 2, it is the rallying cry He says, you see the trouble we're in, come let us build the wall that we may longer suffer derision. Uh, And then in verse 18, you see uh, this this group say, let us rise up and build. Hey, we're going to join you and we're going to build. But that comes after this. This is what he says to them. And I told them of the hand my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king has spoken. So he makes it very clear that God is providential, that God is the one who has ordained and set his steps before him, and that in God's wisdom and in his sovereignty, it is the king who is allowing this to take place as well. So all of these people join him. Uh, Look into verse 19, and you see these folks that are against them, particularly the ones that are going to be named again and again in the text of Nehemiah, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Um, They're angry. They're, they're beyond disappointed, they're disgusted, they're frustrated with the Jews and their desire to, to rebuild, to exist. Um, the enemy will seek to attack and discourage. Uh, and yet in verse 20, we see that it's God that will make us prosper. Um, now, chapter 3, um, we're getting there, we're getting closer to 4, uh, where we need to be today. But look, uh, you're going to look into, into chapter 3 and you're going to see Nehemiah run through basically the the corridor and every portion of the construction of the wall that is around the uh, the temple uh, and the the foundation. You're going to see all of these references to to different people and to all of these different individually named gates. Uh, And for our purposes today, here's what I would say. the theme of what's happening in this moment is that, that the words of 2.18 are coming true. That God's hand is upon them and now these people are rising up in obedience. Israel is seeking to unite together to build the wall according to the Lord. Um, they're rebuilding it gate by gate. The people are rising up to restore what's been broken. And, and a couple of things you're going to see in, in all of chapter 3. Beams, doors, bolts, and bars. You're going to see this repetition over and over of what the construction process entails. Now, not, not like a blueprint, but you're going to see the, these kind of cornerstone big pieces of framework that are needed to repair each of these gates and all of these people that are taking part in that. You ever read scripture and you see this long list of names and you see this stuff and you say, what is this about? What, what do I do with this? How does this not just apply to me, but how do I understand this in the context of God's word? Here's what's happening. Here's the need for this. When we see beams, doors, bolts, and bars, that's demonstrating the historical reality of what's happening. Those are concrete descriptions of the work that is taking place. You need to understand that this is not just a story that is written. This is an account of history. And God, through his people, is rebuilding this. Here's the second thing. These are actual people that are doing this work. They're named. This is not just a group 
in, in, in some sort of large connotation. No, it's instead it's individual people. This is a picture that God uses people like you and people like me to accomplish his work that we get to take part in. And it's all of us. Here's the incredible thing about all those names that you see in chapter 3. You see the high priest and those people that surround him melded with the names of these craftsmen and these people that, that are physical manual laborers. All of these people are working together. This is a whole enterprise kind of effort. This is a real picture, a foreshadowing to some degree, of what it will look like when in Christ we live as a body. We live that 1 Corinthians 12 type of life where, where we're all a part of this wonderful thing that God is doing and we know that Christ is the head. And yet we're all with different gifts with different abilities, with different aptitudes, with different competencies. God is in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty using us to work together. This is a beautiful moment in the history of Israel because these moments have seemed like they've been few and far between to this point. It's been a lot of forgetfulness of God's goodness, a lot of frustration, a lot of sin, a lot of iniquity, a lot of turning from him. Looking at chapter 4, and this is where we're going to focus today. Chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 3. We're just going to kind of walk through all of these uh, because it really, um, it really kind of crescendos into this incredible thing that, that happens in, in verse 14 uh, that not only sets uh, the tone for who God's people are called to be, but who you and I are called to be in Christ as well. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Sambalot hears that they're building the wall. He's angry. He's enraged. And he jeered at the Jews, Nehemiah says. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? He's asking these questions. Are they going to restore it for themselves? Are they going to sacrifice? Are they going to finish it up in a day? Um, are, are they going to take these stones that are, that are burned and broken and ruined and build something great? In effect, he's saying, what in the world do they think they're doing? Um, look, I would say this for, for you and I. In the midst of the work that God calls us to, and when I say this, I'm not just saying, hey, hey, vocational ministry. I'm talking about the work that God has called you to as his child, the work that he's called you to in your life. And I don't just mean evangelism with the person at work, but I mean the life to share and live out and believe the truth of the gospel and continually remember the Lord. When you seek to live in that way, the enemy will Set his place, his desire to stop you. He will do that. Has anybody experienced the work of the enemy this week in your life? All right, me too. Um, look, look into verse 4, and you see Nehemiah's call. He says, hear, O our God, for we are despised. He recognizes that the world, that the enemy is against him and hates him. This is one of those moments where we look back into John 16 and we see the promise of Jesus that, that in this world we will have trouble. I don't know anybody who has ever quoted that to me as their life verse. <laughs> not a favorite thing to say. It's just not. But this is the reality. This is the truth of God's word. We will have trouble. Here's the kind of trouble that Nehemiah is in. Um, when you look into verse 4, you see Sambalot, And then you see in verse 2, it says, army 
of Samaria. Uh, I want to drop down for a second into verses 7, or particularly just verse 7. Sambalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard the repairing of the walls, uh, and they were very angry. Here's the thing. You've got four different entities that are angry about what's happening. You have Sambalot, his brothers, the army of Samaria. Or of Samaria. You've got Arabs, you've got Ammonites, and Ashdodites. Here's the incredible thing that this picture shows about these people and, and their, their uh, enmity, their animosity toward what Nehemiah is doing, what is happening in the people of God. Uh, Sambalot, it mentions uh, his, his brothers or the army of Samaria. That means he comes from the north. The Arabs that are mentioned in verse 7 are to the south. The Ammonites are to the east and the Ashdodites are to the west. So every cardinal direction is covered. Do you know what this means? Do you know what this is a picture of? It means that the enemy is attacking from every angle. From every single angle. In in the most simple way, the text presents to us that the enemy is attacking from every angle, from all sides. That's what it looks like to have trouble in the world. Look into verses 5 and 6, uh, and we find language um, that, that we really struggle to know what to do with. Um, you ever read that passage of Scripture where you flip in one day and you're in Bible study and you're looking to Psalms and you see somebody uh, that, that's God's child uh, that, that apparently is kind of cursing a bunch of people? Uh, that, that, is, that is saying these horrible things that really don't look a ton like what Jesus would teach in the Sermon on the Mount and, and just how hard it is to reconcile that. Look at what he says in verse 5, um, describing Sambalot and all those enemies that are against him. This is what he says. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Um, this is incredibly challenging. Here's the thing. Um, we don't need to see this as a practical example of what we should do to others. Um, so when, when we have those who are against us, who, when those people who have spoken ill of us, those people who are against us in a number of ways, um, look, the goal is not for us to say, um, let their guilt be not covered and let them be blotted from the Lord's sight. Um, This is not a practical example of what we do, but instead, the thrust of this, the heart of this, the point of this, is Nehemiah seeking to say that God is his vindication. He's not saying that he wants to do this. He's not saying that he has ability to do this or that he longs to do it. Instead, he is thrusting it. He is placing it into the hands of God. Uh, A man much wiser than me, Derek Kidner, says it this way. He says, the Christian, while he has a better answer to evil, can learn from Nehemiah to look to God, not to himself for vindication and not to accept the world's low estimate of his calling. This is ugly stuff. It sounds terrible, but the reality is what Nehemiah is doing. He's saying, Lord, they're in your hands. It is your responsibility to vindicate and to redeem your people. Uh, Look into verse 6. You see the wall being constructed. This is, this is the crux of Nehemiah's journey. He is in Jerusalem. He has come to this place where he's investigated all the brokenness, all the rubble, all the shame that has come upon Israel. Remember last week we talked about them being in distress, this remnant being in distress and in shame. So there's this personal component of struggle they're dealing with, this physical component, and there's this other component of emotional 
identity. Who they are is ashamed because of the place that they have found themselves in. And now look at who these people are. Look in verse 6. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So now, in this moment, you see the people working. You see the people banding together. You see the people following Nehemiah's leadership and seeking to do what the Lord has called them to do. They had a mind to work. Where does that mind to work come from? This this is going to be the thrust of everything that happens the rest of the chapter. And and if I could could say it simply, just what the Christ life looks like. It's response to God's heart. It's response to God's heart. These people have a mind to work. Where does this mind come from? Look back to verses or chapter 2 and verse 18. Why did they join? Why did they say, let us rise up and build? Because the hand of my God, this is Nehemiah speaking, the hand of my God had been upon me for good. It's at the understanding of, the recognition of who God is, that in a cerebral way, in a mental way, when we understand, when we assent to who God is and what he has done, our heart is affected. We're drawn into the work of God. That theme's going to emerge again, uh, particularly in verse 14 as we come to a close. Look into verses 7 and 8. Uh, we see something really, really important about how the enemy works. How the resistance here is intensifying. Uh, because look at what happens um, Sambalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, they hear about the repairing and the breaches were beginning to be closed and they're angry. So this is what happens. They plot together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. They're seeking to cause confusion. Now the first thing you might say is, look, it sounds like they are to the north and the south and the east to the west. We're continually describing Israel, God's people, as this very small remnant of people that that seemingly probably wouldn't even be able to fight for themselves. So, So why are they not kind of launching a physical attack here against the people, against this remnant? Here's why. Nehemiah has these letters Nehemiah has authority. He has, he has good faith from the king, Artaxerxes. He is there for, a, for a, not just a divine purpose, but now a political purpose as well. So, so all of these enemies cannot just physically go out and attack. And so here's what they do. It's not a direct attack. It's an attack of the mind. It says, and they plotted together in a fight against Jerusalem and it caused confusion. Here's what confusion is. It's about disheartening and discouraging. Now it's propaganda. Now it's telling lies. All of these things that we've seen in Ezra, particularly that happened in in chapter 5, all of these incidents, all of these moments where the people of God are being spoken ill of, where they're under attack, this is happening yet again. So Sambalot and these people, um, uh, Tobiah, all of these Arabs, Ammonites, the Ashdodites, they're all against them, not in a way physically, but they're continually speaking down to them. Um, if, if you've been here any length of time, you know that, that I love football and that my team is the one uh, with the brilliant colors that doesn't win very often. All right? Um, 
here's the other team I'll tell you about. Uh, one thing I love about their coach, and I hate saying this stuff, and there's some people next service they are going to crush me for this and never let me forget it. It will live on in perpetuity. But here's one thing I love about Nick Saban, okay? Make them quit. Y'all familiar? Is anybody familiar with this phrase? He does this. He talks about this. He says he, the goal is to make your opponent quit. To make them quit. To make them believe that there's nothing left to fight for. That, that, that they can't do it. This is what is happening, and this is what the enemy will seek to do in your life and mine. It won't always be physical harm. It's often going to be much more emotional and much more mental. To try and make you quit. To try and make you stop believing in the truth of the gospel. That you can't do this. Look where you come from. Look where you come from. Look what you've been through. Remember that terrible tragedy that happened. Remember this awful thing that you experienced. Remember your sin. Remember your failure. Remember your brokenness. Not just the sins of the fathers, but you, what you have done. This is what the enemy wants to do. It's what's happening to Nehemiah in this moment. And it's what's happening with Satan and and, and everything that he does and tries to throw at you and I. He wants to cause confusion. He wants to cause doubt. He wants you to not believe what is Nehemiah's response to this. What do you do in that moment of confusion, in that moment of brokenness, in that moment of pain, in that moment where you wonder, will we make it through? Look into verse 9 and see what it says. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. So there's this response to what is happening. There's this true physical decision, this response, but it begins in this way. Dependence on the Lord. Again, it's prayer. Prayer is the action. Dependence is the action. Trust is the action. Acknowledgement of God as sovereign and good and loving, that is the action. And in the midst of that, he's able to set a guard. But the guard is just this. The guard is the picture of the provision of the protection that comes through prayer. The guard is empowered by the God Nehemiah prays to. When we depend on the Lord, when we, in effect, as Luther would say, we preach the gospel to ourselves. When we're in this place of brokenness and instead of turning to figure out what we do, when we go to the Lord, we hear, we remember, we know. In that moment of sin and brokenness and frustration and doubt or that moment when when you're not in that place and yet the enemy is attacking you and reminding you of it, what do you do? You tell the enemy that he's not wrong. Yeah, I know I came from that place. I know I have everything in the world against me. The odds are stacked up, but I have a great Savior. And you preach the gospel to yourself. You go to this place, this posture of prayer, and you recognize that Jesus Christ has lived and died in his resurrection and that your life is in that, not your works. That's where you go. Under attack. All right, verse 10. We're going to speed through the rest of this. Um, 
It's too much. The people of Judah are struggling as they seek to rebuild the wall. The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing, verse 10 says. Look, in moments of opposition, in moments where we recognize that we can't do what we want, um, the beautiful thing about Nehemiah is that there are all these broken moments, these places where nothing good should happen, and yet in the midst of this brokenness, in the midst of these attacks, in the midst of being under a king miles away from your people who are hurting, who you long to return to, God makes this happen. How does he do it? What's the recipe for this? Is it strength? No. This is Second Corinthian stuff. This is my grace is made perfect in weakness. It's in weakness that God works. That's where the people of Israel find themselves in verse 10. Again, 11, the attack doesn't stop. They come against them to kill them. Uh, the enemy will plot to kill them. Notice you didn't see that kill language earlier. This is the tenacious enemy we face in Satan. This, this roaring lion stuff that we mention. This idea that we've turned into like this pithy phrase of still kill and destroy. No, that's real. He wants to break up your family. He wants to destroy your identity in every single way. And as, and as you seek to resist, he will flee and yet he'll come again. And he will try to undermine all that is happening in your life. Um, look at verse 12. Uh, you see, those that are scattered, the Jews who live near, but came from all directions, said to us ten times, you must return to us. There are people that are in need. There are people that are in a broken situation. They're calling out to Nehemiah. And then Nehemiah does this incredibly strategic thing. He places them um, together. Look how. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people. So before he speaks these great words, what he does is he stationed them by their clans. He's putting them together in the context of relationship. He's putting them together to prepare to fight, both spiritually and, and potentially physically. But he's doing it. He's putting them together by people that, that are bound together in some way, that are relational, that have this deep commonality. They have community. They have community. And we're going to see that those are the people that we fight with and for. Look into verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Um, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for, the, for this passage. Here's what we see. Culminates in this moment. Three things. Don't be afraid. The most helpful Hebrew translation would be one that is akin to Isaiah 40. It would be this. Fear not. And in the midst of those words, even in the way Nehemiah would say this, his people would have this understanding. This, it is beautiful. It's this, this idea of helping, helping them remember this thing with the phrase. He's helping them remember this, that God is their redeemer, that he is their protector, that he is the one who fights for them. He says, fear not. Don't be afraid of them. And then this, this is the second thing. Remember who God is by what he's done. 
Remember God who is great and awesome. And then here's the third thing, the action piece uh, physically. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Um, I, I want to describe a little bit about what this looks like and how this is a very succinct picture of the Christian life. The first thing um, is this. He says, fear not those enemies, but this is what he's effectually saying. Fear the Lord. Redirect your fear. Let your fear be turned to the Lord. The fear of the Lord, as Proverbs would say, is the beginning of wisdom. In order to thrive in any moment, we have to recognize, this is what Nehemiah did in his prayer in chapter 1. We talked about how he revered God in his awe and his awesomeness and his beyondness. And yet he acknowledges his closeness. We're to be people that fear not the opposition, but to fear the Lord. The second thing is this. Remember God. Look, the world that we live in, and I think we grew up in, we're all tempted by this. We walked through a series in Colossians where we talked about the worship of angels. We talked about uh, what it looks like for people to desire these giftings of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. You look into the scriptures and you constantly see people who think that spirituality, that true spirituality is this mystical stuff. This wild stuff that, that's beyond and otherly and I kind of can't get my hands on it and it's, it's squishy and I can't understand it. You know what true spirituality looks like? A true, pure devotion to God looks like? It looks like remembering who he is and what he's done for you. This is the secret. It really is. Like it's nuts. It's nuts. But this is it. Trust and believe who God is. And we do that by recognizing what he has done. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to thrive not only in a moment of wall building, but in whatever moment you and I find ourselves in. We don't escape our mental faculties and and get into this mystical place. No, we dive deeper into reality. We look to, we remember all that God has done. This is the theme of the scriptures. Particularly, you walk through the Old Testament and you see time and time again this call to remember. Don't forget, Jeremiah prophesies that these people will go into exile. Why? Look back into chapter 3. What does he say? You forget your God. You've forgotten. So what what do God's people do? What do you and I do? We remember God. And then that causes us to do this. Fight for those that we love. Um, Look, how do you fight for people that you love? Um, I talked to to a dear friend this week um, who essentially said to me, hey, I'm walking through a really hard spot and I feel like the enemy's winning. I feel like the enemy is, is winning. And in his particular situation, and his circumstance, have you been there? Have you been at that place where you feel like the enemy is winning and it's physical ailment, it's emotional, it's broken relationship, it, it, it's something that is happening financially in your life? There's all of these things, this myriad of things that can happen where you feel brokenness. When you remember God's goodness, it will cause you to fight for that clan, for those people 
that you love. Look, I, I'm fighting. I have two little girls. I have two little girls. I, f- I have to fight every day for them. Make sure they don't fight each other, but also fight every day for them. What do I mean? I mean, i got to make decisions for them that help them recognize that their beauty is not on the outside. I gotta help them make decisions that recognize that that screens and some of the things that they that they think are just just for fun, that the enemy is trying to use those things to capture their mind. We gotta fight for our families, for our wives, our husbands, our daughters, our sons, our brothers, our sisters. And I mean that, I mean that in, in a very physical way, your immediate family, but I also mean it in a spiritual way. Because this is our clan. This is, these, these people that we have together, we're God's family together. We need to fight for one another. How do you do that? What does that look like practically? Here's the first thing I would say. Um, three things I'd love for you to walk away with this week. Three things that I'm praying that God will do in my heart and my life. The first is this. We need to fear the Lord and not the opposition and the things that are around us. This is what Keller says. It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves you. I need to recognize that I don't have to fear because it's God who saves me, not my, not my faith that is weak at times and struggles. Here's the second thing. Remember the gospel of Jesus Christ this week. Remember the good news. You and I do this all the time in our mind. We do it in our cars. We do it at our desk. We do it in our, on our pillow at night before we go to sleep. You are a people that knows and has a relationship with God. I know that. I know you remember the gospel. Here's what you and I don't do. We don't sit and talk about it with people like we should. We don't sit and talk about and help, help our wife or our husband or our son or our daughter remember the gospel themselves by experiencing God and then telling them about it. Look, this week, find time with your spouse, with your, with your family to talk about what God has done. You know what that remembrance does? It causes that other person to remember they're encouraged and they run to the Lord for their satisfaction and their joy. They go to that place. Here's the third thing. Um, fight for those you love. Look, for, for those of us in this room with, with children, with, with, with spouses, with friendships, with wherever you are relationally with the people that are close to you in your life, fight for them. And for us, it looks different than it did in the Nehemiah's day. It's not a sword and it's not a trowel. That's not, that's not where we are. Where we are is the sword of the Spirit. That's where we are. Am I going to open myself up to God's Spirit? Am I going to trust Him? Am I going to live in accordance with His statutes? Am I going to love Him because of what He's done in Christ to love me? Is my response going to be, I want to fight for people, so I want to share the gospel with them. I want to remember God's truth, and I want to help them experience that. I want to protect my family and those around me by constantly preaching God's word to them. Will we be people that do this? Uh, I want you to look at one scripture real quick as we close, and the worship team is going to come. Uh, This is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 7 through nine. This is Deuteronomy 4, 7 through 9. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? 
Only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Very specifically, these are the words that Moses tells Israel in Deuteronomy. This portion, this, every time you see law in Deuteronomy, you're not just seeing like something to obey and do. You're actually seeing the evidence, the understanding of that law means teaching. This is God's teaching. He's teaching us to remember him. He's teaching us not to forget him. It's, it's, I almost want to laugh. It's silly how simple it sounds. Will we remember God this week? Like really remember him. Would we remember what he's done? As I look at, at, at we're going to have two people baptized this morning. Could we remember the waters of baptism? Could we remember the places that God has delivered us from? You might, this week, you might need to like just go look in a scrapbook. Like just go back and look at what God has done in your life to redeem and draw you to himself. It's in that remembrance that we're going to have opportunity to trust him in this moment and the moments to come. Fear the Lord, not your opposition. Remember him that you might trust him and fight for those around you that you love that they too might experience and know the goodness of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Pray with me. God, you are the ancient of days. You are beyond. God, in this teaching that we just looked at, in, this, in the text of your scriptures, Father, what we find is that you long for us to remember you. And God, we are often so faithless, so easy to forget your goodness and what you've done, and yet you call us to remember the truth. God, this morning, would you call us to remember that you created us in your image, God, that we broke that in our sin, and yet you, you made a way for us to know you through your son, Jesus. And through our, our trust in and our surrender to him, belief in, in the life that he lived, the death, our atonement that he died, God, in the resurrection in which we have life, God, in trusting you for salvation through your Son, God, we're indwelled by your Spirit, and now we have the opportunity to remember your goodness all the days of our life. Would you make us a people that do that? In Jesus' name, amen.